All right, well, we're in Romans chapter 8 this morning. This is week 11 in our journey through the book of Romans together. And this morning and part of next week, we'll be on the subject, the exciting and uh, encouraging holiday subject of suffering. Heather just came over to me and said, remember this is Thanksgiving, you should say something about that. I said, honey, I'm talking about suffering this morning. I don't, but it is connected, actually, you'll see that in a minute, but gratitude is a part of this. I'm hoping that the impossible will happen in our hearts this morning by the end, which is that you will become grateful for your suffering because of what it produces in you, that that's the attitude of Paul. He rejoices in his suffering. And if you're wondering how that can be, well, I hope you'll see that this morning. So I want to start actually where Alan left off last week. He read this to you and mentioned it, and I want to pick up because it's, it's Paul's way of transitioning into this topic, okay? And so Romans 8, 16 and 17, he says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So you have this glorious message that we are the children of God. You've been adopted into God's family. If you're a Christian, you are a a son or daughter of God and a brother or sister of Christ. That's not just a metaphor. That's not just a way of talking, describing our relationship. It is the fact of who you are and who you have become in Christ. That's a glorious thing that Alan talked about. But then, why would Paul throw in this sad little note at the end of that glorious information, which is suffering? And he says, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. What this means is we inherit all that Jesus inherits. You're not only an heir of the things that you want to inherit, you are an heir to all things that Christ has. That includes his suffering. It comes to us not so much through Christ as, as it is in Christ. The prepositions are important. Jesus doesn't hand you all that he has, he, he brings you into himself, and that's where you get everything you have from Jesus is always held in Jesus forever for all of eternity, all right? It's never going to be in you. So Paul at least means that we inherit the promises of God in the future, yes, but it does not appear that this is all that he means. He also means that we inherit God himself. So you don't just inherit the promises of God, you inherit God himself. That's the glorious thing Alan's talking about. When you pray, you're in the presence of God right then. Because you have inherited God himself. The grammatical emphasis here is not on the suffering, it's on the inheriting. Paul is not assuming that some people will not suffer or that some will not endure. What he's, he's not being negative. He's saying you're inheriting, but part of what you're inheriting is the suffering that Jesus has. It can argue, be argued, actually, that suffering is a part of the inheritance itself. If that bothers you, that's okay. 
You could also say it another way. We could say that suffering is the pathway to glory. I think that's how Peter conceives of it. Suffering is what must be endured so that we receive the full inheritance. Jesus had to suffer to the point of death before he could be resurrected. Just think about Jesus and his resurrection. We love the resurrection and all that we receive from Christ in his resurrection, but we often forget that the only way to be resurrected is to die first. (laughs) And that death was not pleasant. It was a suffering death. Jesus didn't die in his quietly in his sleep. He died at the hands of the Romans who were very good at torturing people to death. That's what they did to him. If we're going to follow on the pathway of Jesus as co-heirs of God, then we will follow him through his suffering to his resurrection and glory. Where Jesus goes, I've said this to you many times, where Jesus goes, you go. And we all go, amen! Therefore, suffering is just as much a mark of a true Christian as blessing is. You hear that? Our culture, especially evangelical culture, tends to look at blessing as a sign of someone who really has faith. Even if you don't ascribe to the health, wealth, and prosperity kind of stuff, you still tend to think, well, if that person is doing well in life, has a lot of blessing flowing through their life, which for some reason we tend to emphasize money in that equation. But if a person has a lot of blessing, then that's a sign of true faith. But Paul, I think, would disagree. He would say, yes, but also suffering is a sign of a true Christian. Both of those things go in the, in the program. Look at the life of Jesus. If you're going to deny that, you have to deny a massive aspect of what it means to follow Jesus, which is to follow him to his cross and then to his grave and then to the resurrection. So let's get to our main text this morning, looking for what the Spirit can show us about suffering and how we can be hopeful in the middle of it. It's not all bad news. I'm being a downer up front, but there's good news in it, okay? So Romans 8, 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So let's pause there for just a second. This is Paul's thesis statement. He does this a lot. It's kind of a habit for him. It's the way he writes. It's his thesis statement for what he's about to say. So the next section, this is what he's going to be exploring and unpacking as he writes. He's he's opening it up more and more from this one statement. Okay, So he's already established that suffering is part of following Jesus, but the hope we have is not in avoiding suffering. That's the American way. But the hope is in the fact that what, what we suffer pales in comparison to, quote, the glory that is to be revealed, end quote. So our hope is not in, I'm going to do everything I can to avoid suffering, and the more successful I am at that program, then the, more, then the happier I'm going to be. He says, no, your hope is in the fact that whatever it is that you go through now pales in comparison to what's to come. And when you get that, then you can endure anything with dignity. So look at verses 19 through 25. This is the meat of the section. He says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons or the children of God. 
I would translate it children like the NIV does. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons or children, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Okay, so first of all, when he says the creation, what he's talking about is just the entire created universe. He's not really focusing on humanity. He's just talking about the stuff you see when you go outside. The stars in the sky, the moon, the, the earth, the trees, everything. So creation itself is affected by sin, is cursed by sin. It's not just humanity, it's the world, the universe is broken and not working as it ought to. It's been infected by sin in the same way or in a similar way that you and I have. Nothing works right. Like nature itself is broken. Nature itself is not pure. It's a weird kind of modern thing to, to not see creation as something that's trying to kill you. It's a sign of our affluence that we live indoors with air conditioning. But if you lived outdoors in a culture that lives outside, you would not see creation as this pure place that you go and wander around in and, and just feel warm and fuzzies. Creation is a place you go into, at least sometimes, and it tries to kill you. There's things that want to eat you and kill you. There's holes to fall in. There's not food readily available. We have that perspective because we can go down the street to the grocery store and eat anytime we want. The world is not trying to kill you. You're protected from it. But we all know if you stay outside long enough that it's broken. So both creation and humanity, that's us, are waiting in a painful anticipation for the return of Christ where our bodies or our flesh, Alan pointed out really well, will be fully redeemed. This is something like childbirth. He uses, he's using childbirth as a metaphor for what it's like to live in the world. We are groaning in the birth pains, anticipating when the child will be born, which in this metaphor is when Christ returns, or you die, whichever comes first. So life is like childbirth. I will not ask for a show of hands, but if you've experienced the pains of childbirth, it was not pleasant. No matter how many drugs you were given, you would not choose to do that unless there's a payoff that makes the pain worth it. Because no mother says when she's holding the baby in her arms, that wasn't worth it. She says, yeah, it was awful, and I'm going to tell this story to this child for the rest of its living life. But no mother says, I would not do that again. I would rather not have the child than to go through that. And the thing that allows her to endure the pain is the hope of the baby that's coming. You see that? 
This is what it's like to be human and to breathe and to live on this planet. It is like the pain of childbirth. Nothing is easy. Nothing works right. This is not supposed to be easy and fun. It is like giving birth. There's no cakewalk. Living is not for sissies, as they say. It's hard. I love that he admits this. He's giving so much time and space in his gospel presentation to say to you, look, if you feel like life is really hard and everybody else seems to be fine, let me just tell you, it's not easy for anybody. It's like giving birth for 85 years. That's what it's like. And you have moments of rest between having to push, between contractions, but the tone of it is, this thing is hard on everybody. I think we really need this message in our day. Because people are starting to realize that the, the barriers of comfort, of modern affluence, are no longer insulating us from the difficulties of being human. And people are beginning to wonder, how do I make sense of the world being such a mess? I thought that if I worked hard enough and I got enough education and I obeyed all the rules, that life would be easy for me. That's what I was promised when I was little. And now I'm working hard, doing the best I can to be a good person and doing all the right things, believing all the right things, saying all the right things in the right way, and yet still life is hard. Paul's right there with you. So living this life as we all are is a kind of painful anticipation. It's not pointless suffering, which is our first source of hope. It's hopeful suffering, just like a mother waiting for her child to be born. Verses 26 through 27 goes on, and he says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So not only do we have hope because of the glory of what's to come, but we also have hope in the present because the Holy Spirit himself groans with us. The Holy Spirit has no reason to groan. He's perfect. He doesn't lack hope or the ability to, he's not suffering. He's in you and he's ident so identifying with you in your suffering that when you groan, he groans. And him interceding for you, that's a beautiful picture. He's not just praying for you. He is praying for you. He's praying to the Father on your behalf, but he's praying as you. That's intercession. It's standing in the place of the one who prays. Because the one who should pray as they ought, as he says, is so broken and so lost in the pain of childbirth, he or she is unable to pray. They do not know have the words or the heart to pray. And so the Holy Spirit says, I will pray in your place as you to the Father. That feels pretty great. That's good news. Because everybody in this room 
is either now or has been or will be in a place where the weight is too heavy to carry and you don't know how to pray. And if you did know how to pray, you might not even bother because it's just too much. And I need you to know in that moment, the Holy Spirit stands in your place and prays for you and groans to the Father for you, cries out to the Father as you in your place. And so even in that broken place, lying on the floor, unable to function, the Holy Spirit is crying out for you. And he prays the perfect prayer with the perfect heart, with the per- knowing the perfect will of the Father when you have no idea. Do you ever feel that way? This is hard. I don't even know what this means. I don't even know, is this the devil coming against me? Is this my fault? Is this my neighbor's fault? Is this the pastor's fault? It's somebody's fault. I just don't understand this at all. You don't have to. You're off the hook. Just lay there. Shh, be quiet. He'll pray for you. That's wonderful news. Not only that, but in your weakness, the Holy Spirit, it says he gives you strength. He prays for you in your weakness. You say, well, I just have this massive hole in my character. And every time I go through this thing in my life, I just crumble. I just crumple up like a piece of tinfoil. Just like I can't carry any, I have no strength in me. And you would say, well, I'm, why am I so weak? Holy Spirit says, it's fine. I'm not weak. I'll stand in that place of weakness and I'll be strong. You just sit there and be weak. You don't have to be strong. You just be weak. That's your job. And I'll stand there. I'll do the praying. I'll do the living. I'll do the working. I'll stand in your place. Spirit of Christ in us prays through us, keep any praise in our place, both things. So I'm well aware that there's people in here suffering. I mean, even if I didn't know personal, have personal information, you were all strangers, I could assume that. And it's all different kinds of suffering, right? There's just circumstances, you know, just not ha- nothing works, my car doesn't work, my, you know, the country song. Everything's broke. (laughs) My roof leaks. My tires are flat. My wife's mad at me. My kids are rebellious rednecks. My boss hates me. I hate my job working in the coal mines. Even if you're working in an office, you feel like it probably is really a coal mine, and this is all just not real. Right, Or maybe, maybe it's inside. Maybe your suffering is in here and nobody sees it. Maybe everything outside is working and looks like it's great. You got a good job, your wife likes you most of the time, or you're not married at all and you just love being single. Everything but inside, there's just something wrong. Your mind doesn't work right the way it should. 
and how you spend all your energy and strength trying to compensate for the way your mind does not work. Your mind betrays you constantly, either because emotions all over the place or your thoughts are all over the place. You can't focus or you can focus, but you focus on the wrong things. You're up and down, depressed, happy, depressed, happy, depressed, happy. Your emotions are all just unregulated, whatever it is. That's a kind of suffering. I think it's important here maybe to get some perspective, or maybe it's because I'm taking a church history class and it's on my mind. But uh, Romans, if you remember the first week, if you were here, and I told you when Romans was written, when Paul wrote what we're reading. It was in the late 55 A.D. or maybe somewhere between there and 57. But what's important, I think, and interesting is that in 64, just nine or so years later, Nero, the infamous emperor Nero, began 300-plus years of persecution against Christians that was centered around Rome, the place where Paul is writing this letter to up until 64, what was different was that Christianity became its own thing. Judaism was a legal religion. And Christianity up until that point was thought of as a subset of Judaism. But it kind of got its own identity, and we can see theologically why that happened. But when it became its own thing, people hated it. <laughs> because one of the things Christians would not do is bow down and worship the emperor. Listen, if anyone ever says, bow down and worship anything other than Jesus, just don't do it, okay? Just don't, as a general Christian rule, okay? And so they just wouldn't do it, and that was seen as deep disloyalty against not just the emperor, but Rome itself. They also refused to worship pagan gods for the same reason, and those two things are seen as disloyal and weird and strange and cultic. We were the first atheists, did you know that? That word was invented for us, atheists. Why? Because we didn't worship the gods that everyone else worshipped. And we were not loyal to Rome and to the emperor over Jesus himself. We had an invisible king that we followed that everybody thought was dead. And so they thought we were weird. And so in 64... Nero decided, because probably because Nero is crazy, decided to burn the city of Rome. That was, yes, he was the Roman emperor and he burned his own city. Nobody, he was just crazy. He wanted, he thought humanity was evil and needed, he just hated everything and everybody. That's all we know. So he burned it. But he couldn't tell people that he burned it. He blamed it on who? The Christians. Who can I blame for my maniacal murderous rage? I think it'll be these weirdos that won't worship me and keep annoying me and annoying their neighbors because they won't do what they're supposed to do and they won't say the words we tell them to say and so we are going, I'm just going to blame them. And they became like, he declared Christianity illegal. And you could be arrested, imagine it. It's hard for an American, but imagine for a moment that a police officer can pull you over because you have some kind of fish sticker on your car, or someone's just accused you of being a Christian, just on the fact that you're a Christian alone, and that is enough to be arrested. 
That happened overnight in Rome, just nine years after Paul wrote this. So Nero round up, rounded up all the known Christians. We don't really know how many. It was probably hundreds. Declared, so the people who heard this read in their church, written by Paul, think of it. You've just heard this read to you, and you go, oh, wow, the present suffering can't be compared to the future glory. And then nine years later, Roman guards come knocking on your door. He rounded it up, declared them guilty of arson as well as general hatred of mankind because that's what they thought Christians believed, and he had them tortured to death. Let me just list for you some of the ways they were killed. He wanted their executions to be a public spectacle, so he killed them in a variety of ways to make it memorable for people. First, some people got sewn up into animal skins and then torn apart by dogs. Crucifixion, speared by a stake and burned to light his garden at night. How many bodies would it take to light your garden? And then Paul was beheaded because he was Roman and that was seen as merciful. So the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter were rounded up. Paul was beheaded and Peter was crucified. And as the story goes, he refused to be crucified right side up because he didn't feel worthy because that's how Jesus was crucified. So he said, turn me upside down. So the one who wrote these words not only suffered in his life, and he talks about that some in other places, but the way his life ended nine years after writing this was to have his head removed. This kind of persecution would come and go against Christians across the entire Roman Empire until 313 A.D. So think about how many years that is. It's over 300 years. Constantine declared it legal to be a Christian at that time. At times it was worse than Nero, if you can imagine it. At times it was easier. But suffering for the faith was a feature of being a Christian for the first 313 years of our history. Paul was not only giving us the truth, he was prophesying of what it was going to be like for everyone's memory for 300 years. Now we here don't suffer this way. We have a different kind of suffering. But it's interesting, by the way, if you read about the the, the social intellectual persecution leading up to the physical persecution, it's very familiar. It was very hard to get around and do things socially in that culture leading up to this. In the United States, we're not persecuted for this, like this for our faith, but our own suffering, maybe even if it's not so severe, is real. The things we suffer in our own way, in our own culture, are also very real. And I don't want to put your suffering down, but I want you to put it in perspective. Nobody's knocking on your door, dragging you into the arena to be torn apart by lions or have hot lead poured down your throat or burned at the stake or any of the other myriad of creative ways that they come up with for those 300 years. They got bored with crucifixions and went on to other things. 
The consistent story of early Christian martyrs was that if they refused to curse Christ, then they exhibited a supernatural, miraculous peace and strength through their torture and death. The Spirit of Christ attended their pain with them and carried them through with dignity and faith. And the same can be true for us. It's that willingness to say, I'm not going to curse Christ. I'm not going to bow the knee. I'm not going to walk away from him. I will remain loyal to him at any cost. And in that moment, you are nearer to Christ in your suffering than you ever were in your comfort. That was the story over and over and over and over again. People singing as they burned. How can that be? It's not physically possible. Story after story of people rejoicing and in embracing the stake as they burn. How can that be? Because the Holy Spirit interceded for them in their weakness. And Christ was more near to them in that weak, broken, physically weak, emotionally weak and broken place than ever before. And that truth that Paul describes in Romans 8 was true for them in that moment. And they didn't know how true it was until the flames started. The same is true for us. You don't know how true it is until things get hard and you discover what it's like to be truly weak and unable to function without even the ability to pray, which seems like the basic thing that Christians do. You can't even do the most basic thing and then you discover in that moment that the Holy Spirit is alive and well and he will pray for you. He will give you strength in your weakness and he will carry you through because your present suffering cannot be compared to the glory that is to come. I think I have time. I want to read something. Hopefully this is not too nerdy. I have this letter. It reminds me of life. You've ever, you've ever read C.S. Lewis's uh, screw tape letters? Where you have the subordinate demon who's tempting a young man and he's writing letters to his superior officer and he's giving him tips on how to tempt. The, this is, but this is a real letter. This is a letter from Pliny the Younger who was a Roman magistrate in the 100s, which was a really terrible time and his emperor was emperor trajan and he's writing him a letter saying hey i'm not sure if i'm tormenting these christians in the right way or not could you give me some advice i really wonder if c.s lewis read this and said this would be a great book because <laughs> there's a dark humor to it but none nobody's trying to be funny okay and i think it's really powerful because the way he describes the christians and their response is great so i'm going to read this at risk of boring you, all right? So it is, he says, this is Pliny to Trajan. He says, it is my custom, sire, to refer to you in all cases where I am in doubt, for who can better clear up difficulties and inform me? A little ingratiating yourself is a good idea. And I have never been present at any legal examination of the Christians, and I do not know, therefore, what are the usual penalties passed upon them or the limits of those penalties or how searching an inquiry should be made. I have hesitated a great deal in considering whether any distinction should be drawn according to the ages of the accused 
whether the weak should be punished as severely as the more robust, or whether the man who has once been a Christian gained anything by recanting. All important questions. Again, whether the name of being a Christian, even though otherwise innocent of crime, should be punished or only the crimes that gather around it. Do I punish them for being a Christian alone? Or do I punish them for crimes they committed because they were our Christians? In the meantime, this is the plan which I have adopted in the case of those Christians who have been brought before me. I ask them whether they are Christians. If they say yes, then I repeat the question the second time and also a third, warning them of the penalties involved. And if they persist, I order them away to prison. For I do not doubt that, be their admitted crime what it may, their pertinacity and inflexible obstinacy surely ought to be punished. That they would just say, I am a Christian over and over and over again. That is enough of a crime to punish them. There were others who showed similar mad folly, whom I reserved to be sent to Rome as they were Roman citizens. That would be Paul, by the way. That's what happened to him. Later, as is commonly the case, the mere fact of my entertaining the question led to a multiplying of accusations, and a variety of cases were brought before me. In other words, people turned in other people to avoid being tormented themselves. An anonymous pamphlet was issued containing a number of names of alleged Christians, those who denied that they were or had been Christians and called upon the gods with the usual formula, reciting the words after me and those who offered incense and wine before your image, that's the emperor's image, which I had ordered to be brought forward for this purpose along with the regular statues of the gods, all such I considered acquitted, especially as they cursed the name of Christ which it is said, bona fide, Christians cannot be induced to do. He says, I know that real Christians, bona fide Christians, will not curse Christ. Still others there were whose names were supplied by an informer. Imagine the pain of your fellow church members turning you in. the betrayal that ran through the church for people to save themselves. These first said they were Christians, then denied it, insisting they had been but were so no longer, some of them having recanted many years ago and more than one full 20 years back. These all worshipped your image and the God statues and cursed the name of Christ. I then thought it more needful to get at the facts behind their statements. Therefore, I placed two women called deaconesses under torture. But I found only a debased superstition carried to great lengths. So I postponed my examination and immediately consulted you. This seems a matter worthy of your prompt consideration, especially as so many people are endangered. Many of all ages and both sexes are put in peril of their lives by their accusers, and the process will go on for the contagion of this superstition has spread not merely through the free towns, but into the villages and farms. Christianity was spreading like hotcakes. Still, I think it can be halted. <laughs> and things set right beyond any doubt the temples which were nigh deserted are beginning again to be thronged with worshipers the sacred rites which long have lapsed 
are now being renewed, and the food for sacrificial victims is again finding a sale, though up to recently it had almost no market. So one can safely infer how vast numbers could be reclaimed if only there were a chance given for repentance, so-called repentance. Can you imagine what that was like? So I guess my point is that we stand in a long line of people who understood that being a Christian means you suffer. And it's just part of the deal. And it doesn't mean that there's no blessing and there's no joy. There are beautiful things about living your life. It's not all bad. But it's not all good either. And there are times, see, I think we as charismatics, we're so scared to admit this, because we think somehow it means lacking faith. But we forget that all present miracles are is the Holy Spirit taking your future glory, what's promised to you in the future, and breaking it into the here and now. You're getting to taste what is coming. It's amazing when you think about Lazarus, who was raised from the dead. He died again. He lived, he was probably not happy. Would you? You're dead and gone. You had a good life. You know, it was shorter than usual, but it's fine. I'm in heaven now. Everything's good. Everything feels good. All the suffering and the weight that you carry in life is over. And then you hear this sound way in the distance. Lazarus. Come forth. No! I've just been here 10 minutes. And he drags you back out where you have to live. And Lazarus became part of the controversy over Jesus. It wasn't good for him. He's now forever associated with Jesus because Jesus pulled him out of the grave. Nobody ever seen that before. But was that the solution for him? As great a miracle as that was? No. Death was still coming. Life is still life. He had to do that again. So we need not be afraid of miracles and faith, and we need not be afraid of suffering. It's all part of being a Christian. So let me review. There's two hopes that I see here, at least two. One, our future glorification with Christ will far outshine any pain of this one. The pain of childbirth does not cast a shadow on the joy of the child being born. No Christian will say or even think for a moment that the pain of life was not worth the joy of eternity. When you're standing in eternity with Christ, reviewing your life, however hard it was, whether you died at the stake or you suffered under sickness, or rejection, or separation from family, or whatever it was, you will not look at it and say, the childbirth was too hard, I wish I had never gone through it. You will look at it and you will praise God that that was the pathway to your glory. And you will be grateful for the suffering. Can you imagine? Hard in this life. But then it will be easy. We will thank God for the pain because it was part of what brought us forward. 
The second hope is that the Spirit strengthens us in our weakness, interceding in our place. The Holy Spirit dwells in us now, strengthening us and interceding for us. And we can have hope that the present suffering is producing in us good things right now. Right now. Not just for later. But right now it is producing the character of Christ in you. It is producing a deeper faith, a more resilient patience in this life. A willingness to go through whatever it takes to be like him and to grow to be more holy and more sanctified and more righteous. You will thank him for it because it's producing good things in you right now. So let me encourage you, if you're suffering right now, going through something really hard, stand up under it. Bear up under the weight of it. Hug, cling to your cross and rejoice that it is on your back because you are identifying with Christ and this is the only way to identify with him in that way is to suffer with him and it is producing good things in you stand there with Paul he said I rejoice in my suffering you say well I don't feel like it well there would be something wrong with you if you did that's weird There's a lot of that in Christian history, too, and we just won't talk about it. We don't ask for it. We don't want it. We don't love it. It's a broken place. What we do instead is we stand up under it, and this is what our worship becomes. Worshiping God from the pit of suffering is part of what it means to be a Christian. There are many beautiful things about life, but ultimately this is not our home. This is a broken place, broken by sin, and full of futility. Remember Romans chapter 1. That's his whole thing. This place is messed up. It's futile. People are futile in their thinking, and the nature itself is broken. This is not our home. If you live here long, you will experience the birth pains that Paul refers to. It is only because of our affluence that we think it's strange when life is unbearable. The following Jesus means following him into his suffering on our way to glory. But we are not alone. We have the spirit of Christ dwelling within us and dwelling among us. He strengthens us, prays for us, and holds our gaze forward to the glory that is coming. So if you need more hope, you go to Jesus. It's what Israel was saying standing here a few minutes ago. This is a difficult season for a lot of people. And the answer is not to pretend like it's not. The answer is to run to Jesus and declare his name over yourself and lean on the Holy Spirit in your weakness to strengthen you and to declare the name of Jesus when you cannot. He will do it for you. Why don't we stand up and pray together? just a moment we're going to worship again with one more song I think that's appropriate (laughs) because this is our response to difficulty now if right now you're feeling great life is good you're excited about Christmas and some turkey and there's money in the bank and life is good then praise God for you your time will come 
But for the rest of us, I want to pray that when we worship in just a moment, that it would be an invitation to the Holy Spirit, even if you don't feel like worshiping. That just means you should sing louder in defiance of your suffering and claiming joy for yourself. So the less you want to sing, the louder you sing. That's how this works. And I want to pray that the Holy Spirit would come right now and do what Paul promised he would do, which is to step into your place of weakness and sing for you and pray for you and strengthen you in that place so that it's not just you and your flesh doing your thing and pretending, but there's a real thing that happens in your heart as we sing. So let's pray for that. Holy Spirit, we invite you in to our hearts once again. Would you fill us Fill us with yourself and your strength. God, I pray especially for those who are having a hard time right now, either with outside things or inside things, things that we all know or things no one sees. Holy Spirit, would you breathe life into them right now? Strength, joy, and peace, a hope that is everlasting a hope that is grounded on the promises you give us in Romans chapter 8. And I pray as we worship together that this would be our thanksgiving to you, our response to the pains of childbirth, that we would sing through the childbirth until the very end. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen.